Amen. Amen. Glad you're with us on a big morning. Uh, we've got these baptisms happening. We're obviously very excited about that, but we also have to think about some really hard stuff. Uh, it's just not appropriate for us as pastors not to talk about the full scope of what the Scripture has in it, and the Scripture has in it a lot about suffering. Uh, and I've alluded to the fact that we're going to be talking about this um, and it's just, it's time to do it. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open it up to the book of Job. It's about midway through. If you just let your Bible fall open, the rest of you, of course, are just using something uh, that you tap on, but that's fine. Tap or turn your way to Job. We're going to be in the very beginning of that book. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to gift you one. Uh, we'll definitely have those words on the screen for you as well. Uh, I've only been a pastor for about seven years, and... While pastors don't always get called to go to like fun stuff, uh, we do always get called um, for the really hard stuff. And we're, a, you know, the church that we are. You know, we're only as big as we are. We've only been around five years as Hope Church. I was a pastor some other another place for a little while, but um, even in that amount of time, we've had some really heavy stuff. This week, we've had some. Really heavy stuff. If you've not experienced some really heavy stuff, just wait. So sorry, but it's coming. And when that kind of thing happens, we have huge philosophical questions. When those kinds of things come, we have huge personal questions. Our culture, unique among cultures globally and cultures historically, our culture is uniquely bad at suffering. We culturally don't have a good understanding of why and what to do with suffering. But to be part of a church, you're, you're stepping into a culture within a culture. You're stepping into a belief system that's very defined, even within a culture that has a belief system that's got a lot of different edges on it. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to help you over the next couple of weeks as we go through this book in Job. I want to help you understand something about our or if you're just investigating Christianity, and I hope there's many in here this morning that are, the, the biblical culture and the way that we understand what to do uh, with suffering. So, uh, in a different vein for a second, uh, Rachel and I don't have cable, which means we watch a lot of YouTube. And uh, we're not better than people with cable. We still watch as much or more, like, just stupid stuff that doesn't help you at all. Uh, but when you're on YouTube, you can find all kinds of stuff, and you can, like, go really far with it. And uh, I stumbled on this guy who's a, a forger. He, he makes things out of metal. He's a blacksmith. And he's got uh, this power hammer. And when I was trying to think about ways in which to take the different blocks of understanding from the book of Job and try to put them in a metaphor that could kind of cover all that we're doing this morning, all I could think about was that power hammer. So, you know, like in old times, um, 
if you you can go to places today where they'll do like you know pioneer time blacksmithing or whatever, and they get it as hot as they can, and they start smacking it with a hammer. But now, like, you can do whatever you want. You can get it as hot as you want, and they'll take steel and they'll get it over a thousand degrees, and then they'll take it and they'll put it in a pneumatic power hammer, and it's got this incredible giant like anvil base. They, they bring in tongs, the glowing orange steel, and they set it on that base, and then he hits the pedal, and a pneumatic power hammer slams that metal at incredible force with an incredible rapidity. It can go boop, 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 and just start really smashing that metal. If we're thinking about suffering, we're trying to understand what is happening with it, I'm not stepping outside of Scripture to talk about the way that metal is heated and then worked. In understanding what's happening with suffering, a hammer falls in suffering. The question that we need to answer from Scripture is, does the anvil hold? Does the metal shatter? Let's think first about the hammer that fell on a guy named Job. We don't know when Job was written. We don't know who wrote it. We don't even know where it's describing. He's just a man in the east. And so from a biblical perspective, that's probably east of Jerusalem. And I think that the reason that the Bible has some question marks around Job is because it is supposed to be timeless. This was not a message for some ancient time that now we have to slowly kind of climb our way back into in order for it to have any relevance. The book of Job is written for us today. And it's very easy to take apart the cultural kind of pieces to the book of Job and just understand the human drama of what's taking place. This guy, and this is how the, the scripture presents it. There's this guy, and he is a great man. He's the greatest man in the East. Okay, again, what does that mean? Well, Job describes it himself in, book, uh, in chapter 29 where he says, When he would walk into town, the young men would see him and withdraw. The aged... And this is a culture that respects the aged. The aged would rise up and stand as Job walked by. And a show of respect. Some old men, you watch them get up. That's not easy. But they would do it for Job. Because Job was a man they respected. The princes refrained from talking, laid their hands on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed. And their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. This was a respected man. And this was a wealthy man. You'll notice from what he loses in this first chapter just how wealthy he was. One thing that we don't understand is today if you have wealth, you put it in some sort of electronic thing and it just disappears and somebody tells you you have that money and, you know, hopefully, right? But in those days, your wealth, you could see, you could count, you could feed <laughs> because your wealth was seen in these flocks, these animals that would each represent the amount of, of the ability that you had to, to provide. It was food for you. It was all the different things that those animals provided. This guy was immensely wealthy, immensely respected, and he was godly. God himself, when he's talking to, and you'll see this in just a second, uh, the enemy, Satan, he says about Job that there's none like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. When you get an introduction like that, what do you expect the rest of your story to be? Look at Job chapter 1. 
Let's go down to verse 13. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters, he had ten of them, were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And Job is not there. It tells us in another part of this that his, his kids would get together and feast at different ones of their houses and Job would be at his place and he would be thinking about them and he would, oh, maybe they sinned some way so he would sacrifice for his kids just to make sure. And... But he's at his place and a messenger comes to Job and says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians, it's a group, a, a tribe, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants in the, with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another. It's so crazy. Each of these servants interrupts the one before them because the message that they've got, they are so sure, is not in any way uh, an interruption. Like... I know that what I'm about to say is more important than whatever that guy's saying. So they each interrupt the one before them. The second servant, he runs in and he says, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And as he's speaking, another one comes in and says, The Chaldeans, another tribe, another group of people, formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, another came in and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. You have four waves of suffering that come in, and it's interesting how these waves are kind of put together because the first wave is a group of men who come and attack Job. You can kind of see where that comes from, but the second one is what we might describe as an act of God. Fire just falls from heaven and consumes the animals. Is it lightning? Is it actual fire from heaven, Sodom and Gomorrah? Is it, I don't know. That's what the guy said. Then... Wave three is men again. It's people that he can see and understand and probably know some of the dynamics of the Chaldeans and their tribes and the way that they're operating. And those guys come and steal and then a wind. So if you're Job, you've got these four different messengers boxing you in on all sides, both suffering from earth, from people, and from above. And he falls on the ground... And yet he worships his response and what's happening. We've got to try to put all together. And in order to understand something of what's happening, we do have this first part of the book of Job. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's a view into the heavenly host where God sits and all his people around him, all of his angels around him. And look what happens in verse 6. This is a way for us to try to understand what's going on with Job. And as I read it, I want you to think about whether or not it's satisfactorily for you, uh, helps you understand what's going on with Job. Look at verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God is a way in which angels were described in the Scriptures. It doesn't necessarily mean physical children of God. 
angels who are coming before God to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also comes among them. Now, I don't know if you know much about Christianity. We have a bad guy in Scripture called Satan. He's the serpent in the garden who tempts Adam and Eve. He is the guy who's wanted to do all this to Job. He is a fallen angel, a created being. And God somehow, for some reason, allows Satan to come in among those who have come to present themselves before the Lord. And God says to Satan, from where have you come? As we do, immediately, he's looking at all these, Satan comes in, where's this guy coming from? He doesn't ask questions, though, because he doesn't know. He's trying to draw Satan out. He's got his plan for what he wants this conversation to be like. And Satan answers the Lord and says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. It's interesting to know that Satan doesn't give God the normal kind of um, greeting, the normal kind of obeyance that you would when you speak to a Lord, man to man, much less angel to God. He's a rebel before God. But he doesn't speak until the Lord speaks to him. And when the Lord's done with him, he's done. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now look here, he's kind of putting Job up on a platter before Satan. Notice this. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Are you understanding what's happening here? There's a confrontation between God and Satan, and God seems to be inciting Satan to have these arguments. Have you considered my servant Job? And then Job, I'm sorry, Satan, takes Job and he starts to bring up exactly why he thinks Job worships God. He makes it something cheap, something dirty. Because his, his motivation is always to take what God values and tear it down. If you hate God, you can't attack God. He's God. The only thing you can attack is some of the stuff he's made. That's exactly what Satan does. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's all he does. He wants to devour the loved ones of God, the faith of the loved ones of God. So, why is this happening? God allows Satan then to do all of the suffering that Job just experienced. Why? That's God's response. God's response after Satan says, don't you understand? He does this and he worships you because you've protected him and you've blessed him. And you've given him so much stuff. So God responds and says, fine. You can take it all away. Just don't hurt him. And then all this suffering rains down on Job. And then verse 20, Job responds in the way that he does. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want us to understand the hammer fall that's happening here. Job has lost everything that he's valued. And then 
he understands it to be coming from God, and he's not entirely wrong. It's not God who does any of this. Suffering isn't from God, but God is allowing it, and he's allowing it in a very specific way. Notice he says to Satan, you can do this, not that. You can do it right now, not later. You couldn't have done it before, but you can do it now. He's, he's directing this hammer blow, and as it falls, it says something about Job. See, God feels this pride in Job. Romans 2.29 says that uh, God can give praise to man. It says Jews want inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In a fallen world, God does direct some of this suffering in order to show the one thing worth really having. God. We can prove this throughout the Bible, but let's go to the Gospels and understand what Jesus taught about it. There's a moment when Jesus, in John 9, walks by a man born blind, and the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Moralistic understanding. You sinned, so you get punishment. You suffering right now? Oh, bro, you must have done something awful. I'm not suffering right now? Woo, what a good boy I am. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' answer is, no, this man has sinned, or his parents. That we can get excited about. We can get excited about him turning off the moralism. But look at this next piece, though. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. You don't go two more chapters before you get to the story of Lazarus, where a man Jesus knew and loved. Yeah, he loves everybody, but he also knew this guy. This guy knew him and knew that he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. And this Lazarus is so sick that he's about to die. And everybody knows Jesus has been healing people all over. It's John 11. You've got 11 chapters of this evidence that Jesus can heal anything. And yet he waits. He waits. When he finds out that Lazarus is sick and he could go back, he waits two more days. And he explains himself to his disciples. He says, he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe me. But let us go to him. Do you see what the Bible is saying? It's terrifying. It's saying that God will allow that hammer ball to hit. And that he'll do it for his glory and he'll do it for what he sees as good and he'll do it as he decides to do it. And it's not him. It's, it's a fallen world, suffering. Do we feel the world is broken? We do. We do. It's a broken world. Those hammers are falling all the time anyway. But he's directing those hammers onto that metal into something. He's building. He's making some, something. He has a different set of priorities from us. As I was trying to describe in my head what it was that that power hammer does to that metal. I thought, boy, it just from the metal's perspective, it just pounds it. But if you ask a blacksmith what the power hammer is doing, he says it's shaping the metal. We don't ask for that hammer fall. Nobody can look at that kind of suffering and be happy 
but God does use it. It's interesting to note, and we've got to notice several things about this. When, Lazar, or when uh, uh, Job goes through this suffering, he does react as we would expect someone to react. There's a school of thought which is stoicism. It's the idea that you can't control what's outside of you, so you just don't worry about it. We say that, being stoic, having a stiff upper lip, just allowing things to happen and just enduring them. Is that what he does? Is this Job guy totally divorced from any experience that we would have? When he worships after going through something like this, of course not. Job is filled with weeping. And we're going to go through two chapters today. The book is 40 chapters long. We're going to do it in four weeks. But that 40 chapters is filled with this poetry of, of Job talking about his brokenness. How he is unmade by so much of this suffering. And Jesus models the same thing. We do weep over this stuff that comes. Jesus, who knew that he was about to call Lazarus up out of the grave, and still he wept before the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus, who knew what he was about to do on the cross in order to save humanity and make all of us have this opportunity to receive him and come to know God again, wept over Jerusalem. They called Jesus a man of sorrows. And surely Job felt this cycle too of this same thing where Satan goes and stands before God and God again says, did you see that he didn't sin? Job then is given by God into Satan's hand to be hurt physically. And after now having lost all of his stuff and all of his people except his wife, he's now lost his health. Gruesome sores pull, uh, cover his body, scalp all the way down to the sole of his feet. Job describes it, and this is the way poetry can describe things. Job, uh, I think it's 7, 5 through 6, says, My flesh is covered with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. You can see that in your head, a boil or some kind of a wound that slowly kind of crusts over and then breaks open again. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come and... Uh, and come to their end without hope. Job feels this suffering. It's real. That's, that hammer fall hits. And Satan keeps going. He says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. God allows it. And then Job, after experiencing the loss of his physical health, again responds. His wife, and we can understand totally, we're not judging anybody here, his wife says to Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And you can imagine, the setting is that all of the heavenly hosts is standing before God watching this conversation between God and the enemy. And the enemy keeps insisting to God that if he would take away the blessings, then Job would certainly curse God. And at this moment where that second hammerfall smashes Job, Everybody waits. And then Job says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, in the moment, as Job says that to his wife, I'm sure nobody clapped. 
But can you imagine what the heavenly host did when Job was faithful in that moment? (laughs) Can you imagine everybody screaming in delight and laughing as Satan has to leave from the court of God? Totally wrong about what love is. Because understand, that's exactly what's going on. Why is God allowing this? I'm not going to pretend like I understand totally. But what's going on in this case as the enemy tests Job and God uses that test in order to prove something mighty. Satan is accusing God and saying that people only love you cheaply. Talked about this last week. There's two kinds of love. There's a love of convenience and then a love of benevolence. And again, this comes from the Puritans, lots of syllables. It's a love that says, I love you for me. Selfish. I love you for what you can do for me. And that's the relationship you have with any store, any restaurant, any coworker, any boss. You love your boss? I don't know. I'm happy I get paid twice a month. If that ever stops, we'll see how long I stay around. I love you for me. Versus this other kind of love. This love that says, I love you for you. I love you because of what I see about you. That's the kind of love that God has for us. That's the kind of love that a mother has for a child. That's the kind of love that a spouse should have for the other spouse. And Satan is saying, no, 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 no. The only people who serve you only ever serve you because they get something from you. Have you ever experienced that kind of religion? Serve God because... And then they start to give you the reasons that you're supposed to serve God. Serve God because he'll bless you. Oh, what evil has been done in the world by people who have proclaimed that if you'll serve God, ooh, ooh, look at the wealth, look at the health. Name it and claim it. Is that what we see here? God said that people can and do love him deeply and truly. And that is the only thing we're after at Hope Church. You have to see this. You have to understand it. That's the kind of thing that will survive that hammer strike. Religion will not survive that hammer strike. But this kind of love does. And what God is building out of this suffering is something in Job that is real. God allows a test to fall on him that's going to pull apart Job and show the world. Does he just have wealth? And so he pursues God as a means to more wealth. Or does he truly know and have God? And he'll stick with God even when he is pounded with suffering. Well, you got your answer in Job. Now we're going to spend the next three weeks thinking about the hard, hard edges of this lesson. Thinking about it philosophically and also answering questions more deeply personally. But today, we just have to understand that there is something that God is building in us and through us and even with our suffering that's strong. See, when we do these baptisms, we're saying something very specific. It's a weird symbol, if you think about it. There's other things we could do or just say that would mean like, I don't know, you're, you're part of the church or you're part of God's family. 
Why is it necessary? And we get very few questions about this, which is strange to me, too. But why is it necessary for you to get wet in front of like all of your friends and family and then all these strangers? We don't get many questions about it. People are just like, yeah, I guess that has to happen. Okay. And so they just get in. Really? Why? What? What is it saying? It's saying, and this is something that's crucial for us to understand the love that God has for us. It's saying, when you go under the water, that you're being buried with Christ in baptism. We'll use that phrase. You're buried with Christ in baptism. And you're raised to walk in newness of life. Meaning, in this baptism, we're symbolizing how Jesus goes into the grave and comes back to life. Central fact of Christianity is not just the cross, but also the resurrection. And what we have to do in this moment is to put these two ideas together. Because the only way for you to survive that hammer blow intact is to understand... Not just your suffering, but the love of God in your suffering. I don't know if you notice or care, but the way that we have described this series, we talk about how God is always there. He's with us in the fire. I don't understand and I don't claim to why God has allowed all evil. Why God has allowed any brokenness or any temptation to ever come to earth. I'm not going to try to say I understand that. I've got all kinds of defenses. If you want to talk about it, I can defend it. But I'm not going to say I understand it. But what allows me to accept it is that He took the biggest share of suffering Himself. Understand, when we put you in the water and you go under the water and then rise up and we put you into the grave one day, because if I live long enough, I will bury you. When we put you into the ground, what we are saying is that you are going through death. But for you, it's like water that you rise up out of. Why? Because the innocent one took Hell itself, not merely going into death, but going all the way into the full punishment of God for your sin and mine. And then comes back up. What we're saying with suffering, what we're saying with Job, is that if you will start now and you will seek the Lord, you will find something in him that is so strong, that is so full, that even with a hammer blow like Job endures, what you are will not shatter. And what he is, that anvil that he is, is not going to break. There are so many evidences that people in our culture give about how people lose their faith in suffering. Well, I can give you many in this room, who went through that suffering, and they don't thank God for it. They weep over it daily. But their faith is solid. Because because He is solid. As Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, He said, if anybody will build his house on this word of mine, He's like a man that builds his house on the rock. 
when the storm comes and the winds blow, that house stands firm. I'm not promising you a life without suffering. Look at the saints. The saints go through incredible suffering. But I am telling you that in Christ you will find something worth everything. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as our people think about this, they think about the weight of this, I just pray that you would call them to understanding your faithfulness and your love. Yes, the hammer strike is brutal, but your love is so full, so strong that it can survive. And not only does your love survive, Lord, but you can help us to survive. You can form us through it, shaping with that hammer blow. It's not even you that strikes, but you shape because you're in absolute control. And what, we're, what you are making, we do not know. But in Christ, we can trust. Please, Father, bring these people back to hear this again and think through this more as we go through the rest of this series. As we think about these baptisms, Father, preach your gospel and capture us with that love. We pray these things in your Son's holy name.